Hey, hey, everyone. Jen Silverman here, former guest on the I Know You Hear Me podcast, a.k.a. Flynn's annoying little improv sister, jsilf underscore vo on Twitter, jensilf underscore vo on Instagram, or my cosplay page at captain underscore all underscore m-a-i-g-h-t. And now let's get into it. The man you really want to hear, or do you, before he suplexes me. Here's the man of the hour, Flynn Hendricks. Are you needing some decals made? Maybe some vinyl or monograms? Then you need to go check out my wife's Etsy shop at Decals by Kins. That's K-Y-N-S. Go over to Etsy.com slash shop slash Decals by Kins, and you can check that in the show notes as well and see what she's done for other people and see what she can do for you. And I'm speaking from experience here. All of my water bottles, my protein bottles, they all have something that she's printed and put on there, and those things last. So if you need something like that for a gift, for your family, for your kids, or even for yourself go check out what she can do for you and as a special treat for my listeners if you use the promo code flynn that's f-l-y-n-n she's even going to get you 10 percent off your order now you can't beat that so go check it out and see what she can do for you and i know you hear me welcome back everybody to a very exciting and very extreme episode of the i know you hear me podcast with me flynn Hendricks. And God, I have been looking forward to this one for a while. So if you're a wrestling fan, trust me, you are going to love this one. And I got to give a big shout out to my boy Corey Disson for hooking this interview up, man. He put me in touch with a guy that is synonymous with the word extreme. And my conversation with him today will not disappoint. But before we get into all that, man, again, you know the deal, guys. It has been a wrestling-heavy month for me. The auditions have continued coming in, and it's only fitting that we wrap this month of interviews out with a fellow wrestler. How fitting. It's almost like I had it planned, but eh, you'll never know. That's my little secret. But anyway, guys, I'm excited to bring you today's interview. But before we get there, you know what I gotta do. Have you hit that subscribe button yet? Do it. Is this your first episode and you tuned in just because you saw who my guest was? Well, if it is, let me go ahead and encourage you to go back in the archives on your preferred podcasting platform. You know that this podcast is everywhere and it's continuing to grow. But if you tuned in because you're a wrestling fan, go back in the archives because I have got a plethora of former world champions in there just waiting for you to listen to their interviews. And on top of that, too, I've got fellow wrestling talents that help train a lot of today's world champions and a whole lot more. So go back in the archives. There's over a year's worth of quality content right there waiting for you. And once you do that, do me a favor, click that subscribe button, hit the five-star review, and leave me a written review, and I will forever be in your debt. And from there... If you want to connect on social media so you can see who I've got coming down the line as a guest, or if you want to just stay connected with everything I've got going on with my travels, with wrestling, with con appearances, or if you have a con that's in your area that you want me to come do a live podcast at, get me in contact with these people so I can come out to your area, I can meet you in person, and I can have you on the pod too. So there's a lot of things that are going on. So let's sum it up with have con, will travel, have wrestling ring, will travel. Let's make it happen, guys, because I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to meet you, and I know you hear me when I say it's going to be fun for everybody. But before we get to that, man, let's go with the merchandise. I hammer it every week because I I love the merchandise I have to offer. Because not only do I have cool shirt designs, but I also have artwork that has been specially commissioned by a former guest on this show, Katrina Piscina. So check that out. 
And on top of that, too, you want voicemail shout-outs. You want wrestling promos. You want character promos. You name it. I got you covered. And on top of that, the best part of all of it, if you tag me on social media once you get it, I will not only shout you out there, but I will shout you out by name to our growing worldwide audience so you can say you're known worldwide and everybody's going to know you're one of the cool kids that hangs out with Flint. So that sounds like a win-win in my book. But here's the cherry on top, and this is what's near and dear to my heart. A portion of every sale that is made here not only goes to help keep this podcast going, but it also goes to help the Nashville Humane Society or the Peter Mayhew Foundation. Both causes are near and dear to my heart, and if you've listened to this show, you know why. So when you make that purchase, you can tell me specifically that you want it to go to the Humane Society or you want it to go to the Peter Mayhew Foundation, and I will make that donation in your name. So that sounds like a win-win, right? You get a shout-out, you get some cool merch, and you help a great charity. That is a win-win in my book. And what's also a win-win is what's going to take us into our interview on the other side. And when I say you won't be disappointed, trust me, you won't be disappointed with today's guest either. I gave you a little hint at the start of the show that we're going to be going to the extreme here. And man, I guess I got to say thank you, Corey Disson, for that. I don't know how intense and how extreme this is going to get today, but the king of go get it, Mr. Corey Disson himself actually got me introduced to this guy. And this is somebody who I became familiar with uh, through the ECW company back when it was going in the late 90s and early 2000s. MLW around 2007 when I was breaking into professional wrestling as well. This guy was a member of the Extreme Horseman faction. He's also a member of the Anderson family. It is my pleasure to have on the show today, C.W. Anderson. Man, thank you so much for being here. Oh, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be a part of this. Absolutely. Man, so again, like I said, like you've had such a storied career, and I know most of what you did from ECW and MLW, but I know there's a lot more to unpack there. So let's uh, let's back it up to the very beginning here and talk to me about how you got introduced to professional wrestling because everybody has such a unique story for how they discovered this wild and crazy world. So I'm excited to hear what yours was. Yeah, mine's very unique and wild in a sense because I actually grew up hating professional wrestling. Really? I didn't like it. I didn't like it one bit. And, you know, later in life, um, I, was a, I was a baseball star, so I was all about baseball. Mm-hmm. And at the time when wrestling, when I was growing up, um, it was wrestling and Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live was the days of Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase. Legends. Uh, Gilda Radner, the, the, some of the originals. Absolutely. So I was watching that more than professional wrestling but my little brother was a big fan now i live outside of raleigh north carolina i live east where i pretty much grew up my entire life Mm -hmm. still here on the family horse farm um but so we didn't have cable i didn't get cable or anything like that till i was 23 24 year old and it was a big satellite dish yes oh man it was three or four channels up until that time so it was nwa wrestling on Mm -hmm. saturday mornings uh we were able to get um, shotgun, I think it was called Shotgun Saturday Night with WWF yep. on Saturday nights. But NWA was our bed, uh, our bread and butter. Of course, you're right there in the and heart of it. 100% right down the road from Dorton Arena in a historic Man. place, which they're doing a documentary that will be out in the fall about Dorton Arena and professional wrestling, which I was able to do a um, an interview with, sit down and tell my side of the story, being able to wrestle there a few years ago. Very but nice. Back to, back to the story. Um one day, my brother comes up to me. My brother's three years younger than I, and he said, he goes, Chris, can you just sit down with me and watch this one episode of wrestling? 
And he says, if you don't like it, I will never ask you again because he was my little, you know, little brother, want to be attached to big brother. He said, just sit down with me and let's watch this. Mm -hmm. So I sat down with him. And the match was July 4th, I think July 5th, 1984 or 5. It's on YouTube. It was the Rock and Roll Express versus the Russians, Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. NWI, the Rock and Roll Express just came into NWA. And the finish of the match saw Ricky Morton uh, victory rolling Uncle Ivan. Mm-hmm. Um, well, called him Uncle Ivan because my former tag partner was one of his students, and I got introduced. But that's the story for down the road. But I love it. When when they pinned the Rock and Roll Express, uh, Rock and Roll Express pinned the Russians. My brother and I were jumping around, you know, these little kids. The Americans had just beat the Russians, and mm-hmm. we're, um, I was hooked. So from that day forth, I watched wrestling religiously. Never thought I'd get into it because my baseball career took off. Right. And then once, you know, once that fell through, then that's kind of how I got into wrestling at, right after that. Understandable. And that's that's one thing, too, because I, I remember I, I had to go back and watch it because I was born a few years later. But, man, like the emotion between the Rock and Roll Express and the Russians right there, that match, you hear so many people talk about that now. But I'm fascinated, too. Like, what was it that drew you in? Was it like the energy of Ricky and Robert? Was it the size of the Russians? Like, or just the emotion that the crowd was bringing into it or the story it's, they it, were telling? It's, 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 a, it's a, a lot of all of that. Um, Beautiful. The size difference with the Russians or, you know, with, with Crusher and Nikita to the rock and roll. Um, but it was one of the – some of the main things is something that I carry my wrestling career as. It's the emotion. Absolutely. You know, I always value professional wrestling, and I put it in my matches that it's emotion over motion. I see so many guys nowadays jumping around, flipping, doing all these crazy things. And you have a little niche audience that loves that sort of thing. But your casual wrestling fan, your older wrestling fans, and the ones that they draw in the most are the ones where it's emotion. So that's what drew Bingo. me in was the emotional part. Listening and seeing the crowd's interaction, the energy of the room, all that, that adrenaline rush. Um, that we were getting from day one and, you know, them fighting from underneath. It was just so, it was the storytelling and the emotion. It's classic one-on-one professional wrestling. And that's what got me hooked. Absolutely. And that's something too, that I, I think we're of the same wavelength there because I mean, I'm a little bit of a stockier guy, so you're not going to see me doing a lot of these flips and, and high spots, but I, I 100% relate more to the storytelling than I do the athleticism because these crowds relate more to the storytelling. They relate to the bully and the good guy fighting from underneath. So I'm, I'm on the same page as you 100%. Some of your better wrestling matches of today are the emotion over motion things. Yes. Anything WWE or AEW puts out, it's all of the emotion. Absolutely. That brings the crowd in. There's a dime a dozen of the high-flying matches, but the emotional ones, the ones that tell the story, that's the ones the fans will remember most. 100%. And speaking of things that you know that you would people would remember, I, I guess this may be a, a weird transition, but I was not aware that you played baseball. And as we were talking before I hit the record button here, you know, good friend of the show, Corey Disson, his son just got drafted. My son's about to start his baseball season again. So, like, it's funny how baseball has become such an integral part of my life now. But I had I had no idea that you played because I played growing up, too. What, um, what was it like for you growing up playing baseball? And then when that career ends, what made you want to jump from that to professional wrestling? Walk me through all that. Um, I really thought, you know, coming through high school, I didn't really know what kind of gift I had until they put me behind the plate. Um, 
and I was an I was an average speed for catcher. Um, I had a good bat, not great, but it was good. I averaged about 350 in high school. But the one thing I had was an arm because I could sit on my knees and throw it to second base. And they've clocked me at 90. That, my speed was around 90 miles an hour Ooh. on my knees. Man. That was the one thing that I that, – that's the one thing I had. And I loved showing it off. I would I was a huge fan of Benito Santiago. That's the guy I have a tattoo on my leg. And that's kind of how I idolized in baseball. Nice. Even I wore the number zero, you know, the zero nine. I was that's how mm-hmm. I, when he was the zero nine for the Marlins. Um, I transitioned to that from number nine. I loved picking guys off first base for my knees, third base, second base. I just loved showing my arm off, and it, which ended up getting me in trouble because, long story short, eighty nine. I found out the San Diego Padres wanted to draft me. Um, I was talked into turning it down by my family with being a guy that's never been anywhere, never done anything in this little community. My parents, especially my mom, was a huge influence, you mm-hmm. know, hovering. So talked me into turning it down, which ended up me going to college, and that's where I ended up hyperextending my elbow oh. um, and pretty much ended my baseball career. I was able to throw, but nothing like I was before. Right, right. Um, so I come home, from some, come home on a summer break one year and got into land surveying as a summer job mm-hmm. and during a lunch break, I saw an old friend of mine at McDonald's, got to talking to him, and he said, you know, asking what he was doing now, and he said on the weekend he was wrestling professionally. And I was like, how did you get into that? He kind of explained it to me. He says, you know, I have a show right down the road here this Saturday. You ought to come. Um, so I came to the show, got there early, you know, met up with him, and he got me in the ring and started kind of showing me some things, rolled around and caught the bug and got hooked. And Absolutely. Just started going to a, I was going to a school down the road from where I live, it wasn't really much of a trainer there, so it was kind of the guys that were there were kind of teachers themselves. So and that's just kind of how it went for the first few years. I got gotcha. you. Uh, my first match was December third, nineteen, December fourth, nineteen ninety three. That was my first match, and they put me under a hood to kind of get my feet wet, mm-hmm. give me this crazy name. Um, I went out, did the thing, came in the back, and there was a guy. There was two guys there wrestling as the Andersons. They were given the name by Gene Anderson. Mm-hmm. They saw me wrestle, saw my look. Even though I had only had a goatee, I looked more like the big boss man than I did an Anderson. Right, right. And, and sat down with one of them, uh, because his name was Pat Anderson, who unfortunately this past Friday, last Friday, passed away. Oh, you know, I'm sorry uh, to hear that from cirrhosis of the liver. Oh. Um, he was in his mid to late thirties and the guy that was tagging with him was a little bit older and he was getting ready to stop wrestling. And he's looking at a new partner. You know, I'm 23 years old. Mm-hmm. He said, would you like to be an Anderson? Give me the spill on what it was like to be an Anderson that they got the name from Gene. They couldn't job it out. They couldn't disrespect it. And want to know if I wanted to carry on the Anderson tradition, which I said, yes, absolutely. Um, he said, well, you need to come up with a three-letter name, you know, because he, he was Pat. There was Ole, Arn. Let's come up with a three-letter name to kind of get you in the same realm. So for like two weeks, I was thinking of everything in the world. I came up with Ike and Cal. That's the two things I remember. Right. I, um, I remember right before one of the shows that I was going to be in Anderson, um, the, my old baseball coach, who was a wrestling manager now, I was talking to him, and I was like, Mr. Randy, I said, I haven't came out with anything for this Anderson gimmick yet as far as my name. He said, I would just use your initials and call you CW. 
So it's kind of just took my real name and used the initials, and it just kind of stuck, and it took off from there. Absolutely, and the rest is history. And yeah. there's, there's a couple questions I want to ask out of that, and the first one uh, I want to circle back to your first day you know, in training because everybody has that experience where they take their first bump or they hit the ropes, and you know, it, it kind of surprises some people because they don't really know what to expect. What What was that like for you, and – what were you expecting walking in, and did it kind of meet those expectations, or was it something completely different? It kind of met the expectations. The ropes hurt like hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bumps were a lot harder than what I thought it was because it's not naturally to throw yourself back like that. No. Uh, so that was a hard thing to get to begin with. And once I started learning, I think one of the first training sessions, um, like I said, the guys, we I didn't have a very formal trainer until I went to the power plant. So some of the older guys that had been wrestling were kind of showing me things. And I remember one of them hooked me and suplexed me and, and uh, cracked my ankle because I didn't know how to land. So that was kind of an introduction to getting into it was, you know, here you go. Got a cracked ankle for me. Um, But I remember it hurting a lot because you're just not used to hitting those ropes that are Mm -hmm. steel cables and that, you know, the mat, of course, those independent rings, most of them, including that one was very stiff. Oh yeah. And again, that's hoping, too, that they're well-maintained, which I think in this day and age, at least since I started, they've gotten better about maintenance on them. So it, it, it definitely, man, it's it's an adjustment for the body for sure. Yeah. But um, going back to the Anderson name now, was that's a high honor to have, especially in this business, because everybody especially knows like an Arn and an Ole or Ole and Gene, like you referenced before. What did you feel any pressure taking that name? Were you nervous? Were you aware right out of the gate what kind of honor that was bringing that in? What was that like oh, yeah. for you? One one hundred percent. It was learn your trait, learn the Anderson. You know, growing up when I was younger, you hated the Anderson. You course. hated the Four Horsemen, and then you had to learn to respect the work of Ole and Arn um, and what they meant to professional wrestling as a tag team, as in singles, as them being the workhorses. Absolutely, always. And Arn has always been the workhorse, and that's kind yes. of how I prided myself as as being the workhorse of a, of the groups. Um, so it was very. I was very nervous, and I was even more nervous once I got to the power plant in WCW because I was oh, even yeah. closer to Arn then. Uh, because I never really talked to Arn until I actually got to WWF when uh, right after my ECW run, and that's when I spoke to him just a few times. Um, so I was really nervous at the power plant. I was really nervous of carrying that name because, you know, I'll, if you're not Ole or Arn, always everybody's going to say, you know, well, you're not a real Anderson. You're not right. a real Anderson. Well, you know, really none of us are jackass. <laughs> That's you know, the truth, yeah. If you go back to it, they've always asked me, are you related to Arn Anderson? Yes, R- C.W. Anderson is related to Arn Anderson. Chris Wright is not related to Marty Lund. So that's that's kind of the way I look at it and justify it in my head. Absolutely. And, and something you said right there, too, is, you know, you went to the power plant after, you know, five or six years on the independence. What was what was that like? Because, again, that's something I was unaware of in your in your story that you went mm-hmm. back to the power plant there. What was that like going through that? And then, you know, I don't know, did you have to relearn things that you may have picked up on the independence that they were trying to get out of your system and make it the WCW way? What was that experience like? Um, the reason, the way I went there was I was actually training people. And okay. two of my students um, went to that tryout and made it. One of them ended up being Lodi, Raven's sign guy. Mm-hmm. So both of them made it through the tryout. 
which was three days of hell. And then at one point they called me and told me that I need to come up there and try out because I was basically just spinning my wheels here in, in North Carolina because I I was actually the big fish in a little pond. Right. So they told me kind of what to expect. So I kind of got ready as far as the squats. They didn't tell me about how many push-ups you were going to do and the torment. But I went through those three days of hell, which probably the three worst things or three worst days of my life going through that with the squats, the push-ups, the running the ropes. But we started out with 30 people. And at the end of the tryout, which was three days later, we finished with four. Uh, everybody else quit. And I was one of the four that made it. Um, amazing. But once I came back and Sarge welcomed me in, cause it was Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Mm -hmm. uh, Pez Folly and Mike Winter. They didn't actually, I would say they tweaked what I knew. And, you know, I was just learning new things, learning more psychology, learning where to put things at and getting away with bad habits, learning how to sell, um, I would take my matches from the weekend and bring them in and let Sarge watch them. And he would critique them and give me homework to do for my next match. Um, I remember one of them, me and my buddy, Kurt, who would work this toad, we're at the power plant and we can't, we had worked the weekend before we came mm-hmm. in, Sarge watched, watched the match. He said, you did too many lockups and too many rope spots. So the next time he and I went out and worked, we did a 25 match, 25 minute match, never locked up, never hit the ropes and told a story. That was Sarge's things, you know, the, how he was critiquing you on getting better, you know, mm-hmm. fix these things. So uh, that was my main thing. And once I got in there and Sarge started teaching me these things, it got to a point where Sarge started having me show these guys, some of the guys that were there things like the Natural Born Thrillers, Elix Skipper, Lash LaRue, Mike Sanders, Man. Chuck Palumbo. I was in the ring working with them while Sarge would be off working with somebody else. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm still trying to learn to get trained, but I was actually showing these guys cause you know, I'd been wrestling about six years at the time. Yeah. Um, so I, it was a great experience being there. I can, I'm always in the debt to uh, Sarge and the Pez, God rest his soul and to Mike Winter for what they were able to show me and teach me because they took a rough CW Anderson and fine tuned him and transformed him into the guy that got his job at ECW. Absolutely. And how does it go from, you know, being at the power plant to uh, ending up in ECW? Because that's kind of, you know, from one extreme to the other right there, no pun intended. But how does that happen? Because, I mean, it sounds like everything was going, you know, like as well as it could. You were helping train people. You were getting better in the ring, you know, getting psychology down. So how does it go from WCW to ECW? Um, A lot of those guys there were on contract. I wasn't. I was on my own dime coming down three days a week. Gotcha. uh, Learning how to train. Then one time, uh, Paul Orndorff and J.J. Dillon, who were agents, came down to the power plant, and they wanted to watch the guys wrestle. They didn't know what kind of talent they had at the power plant. So like 30 guys there. So they paired everybody up, and luckily, Toad and I were paired together, and everybody had to wrestle a match. And Toad and I were the very last one. And I remember Brad Armstrong being on the ring post watching our match. We did a little 10-minute match, got done. A lot of the boys were popping, you know, coming up out of their seats watching us because mm-hmm. we were doing some innovative stuff. Uh, when we got done, Brad come over and shook our hands. He said, man, that is some straight ECW stuff right there. And he said, this stuff was awesome. Paul Orndorff and J.J. Dillon, I will never forget it. They got me off by myself. And it's like, look, Chris, you know, you got some really nice stuff, but, your move, your wrestling,
wrestling's okay, but we really don't think you've got what it takes to be here at WCW because we're more of a marketing company, and you don't really have that marketing look that we're looking for because at the time I was around 250 pounds, not in the best shape. Mm. So it was a very crushing thing to hear that from them. So a few weeks later, uh, Toad got a tryout at ECW because him being Lodi's tag partner and through Raven and Raven being best friends with Dreamer, Dreamer right. got him the tag uh, tryout. Saturday night before, Toad and I wrestled the public enemy in South Carolina, drove down to uh, Georgia. I can't remember exactly where we were at. And so Toad had his, was going to have his tryout. Now, I knew Steve Carino and Simon Diamond from the Independence of North Carolina, which they were already at ECW. Uh-huh. So Toad got me there. He's like, look, just come hang out, say hello, do a little politicking. At least you'll get to see Steve and Simon, which, who was Pat Diamond at the time. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe you possibly get in the ring, but if not, you can get your name out of there. Toad had his tryout, and I'm standing around the ring, um, just saying hello to everybody, talking to Steve. Toad gets done with his tryout, and Nova was running the tryouts. And Nova looks at, out of the ring and looks at me and goes, Chris, you got your gear. I'm like, well, yeah, it's in the car. He said, run and get it, put it on, let's see what you got. So I get my gear on, I jump in the ring right. with Simon Diamond, do a little five-minute match. I get done. Nova says, man, I really like your timing. You had some great execution. Bah, bah, bah. I roll out of the ring. I hear somebody sitting in the seat scream at Bill Alfonso, Fonzie, get that ball guy back in the ring. So Fonzie looks at me and says, Daddy, he wants you back in the ring. I look over, and it's Paul Heyman. He's sitting there with the, he's sitting there with the Dudleys and Taz. Um, I get back in the ring. They start sending guys to me. I'm working out with them, doing different things for about an hour, it seemed like. So the doors are getting ready to open. They shut the tryouts down, to, and, uh, so everybody goes in the back. I go in the bathroom. I start cleaning up. Um, I'm, like, spitting up blood because I'm hitting the turnbuckles and the ropes so hard. Oh, man. And by that time, the door opens, and in walks Paul Heyman, black hat, long black vest, mm-hmm. or, uh, trench coat. He walks right up to me and sticks his hand out and says, hey, I'm Paul Heyman. It's nice to meet you. Wow. Dry my hands off. I shook his hand and said, hey, Paul, I'm Chris Wright. It's a pleasure. He says, uh... He asked me how long I've been wrestling, asked me a few questions. He says, where are you wrestling at? I said, well, I'm a student at the power plant now. He says, do they have you on contract? I said, no, sir. They told me I really didn't kind of have what it takes to be at WCW. He says, what's your wrestling name? I said, C.W. Anderson. He goes, I knew it. He says, you look like Arn. You have the left punch like Arn and the spine buster. And he goes, don't leave before I speak to you at the end of the night. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're welcome to hang out backstage. So I walk backstage, I'm, you know, hanging out, the show's getting ready to start. Jim Molyneux comes up to me and goes, you're CW. I said, yes, sir. He said, Paul wants to see you in the back. I walk in the back dressing room. Paul is sitting there with Vito LaGrasa, who's Skull Von Crush, Danny Doyne and Roadkill, introduces me to him, says, you're tagging with Vito against Danny and Roadkill, your third match. Welcome to ECW. Wow. Okay, man, that is yeah. that is insane to think about because that just it's like bing bang boom it all happens there. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious to know like how do you go from like how do you mentally process going from getting that high praise from a Brad Armstrong to you know the the crushing news from JJ Dillon and Paul Orndorff to everything that you just laid out in ECW, how do you manage that emotional roller coaster? Because I, I guarantee you there's somebody that would have got that first bit of news and then just been done or maybe walked away from it right there. How did you, you know, get through that funk and keep yourself going to want to keep doing this? 
Um, it, you're right. It was a very crushing thing, and it was. I'm not going to sit here and say like I was very motivational, and I'm going to show them because I wasn't. I was broken hearted. Absolutely. Um, something I've been working so hard for, and then hearing guys like that tell me I didn't really have what it takes. You know, the day of the tryout, I didn't want to go. You know, the night before, I told Tudor like I don't want to go, man. I just don't want to go. I don't have a good feeling. I just I don't go. To it. He said you're going, and he literally drugged me to the tryout. I'm a very shy person. I'm a huge introvert. Like, I don't like going to Walmart and stuff like that when it's crowded. So oh, big yeah. crowd stuff. I don't like being around things like that. So I'm, I'm a very shy to myself person. So being there, I was nervous, scared, um, afraid I was going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I was going to screw up. But once I got in the ring, it's almost like my ability or whatever it was just kind of took over. It was like, I wasn't going to say it's out of body or anything like that, but it's, it's all a blur. That whole trial is a blur. Wow. And I don't remember anything until when I'm telling this story, the first thing that pops in my head is Paul walking in that wood, pushing that wooden door open. I still see that shot of him walking in. Everything mm-hmm. else, that is to a blur. And I was just, I've always been the kind of guy, glass half, half full, you know, it's going to end. It's going to end. So don't set yourself up for disappointment. So mm-hmm. when it does happen, you're not disappointed. Yeah. That's the kind of guy I've always been. And it was just, you know, a little bit at a time. And after that match, and uh, he told me, you know, we're in North Carolina next week. Make sure you're there. I, I called uh, my girlfriend and called my mom on a payphone. And it was crazy because I'm listening to Kurt in the very next stall, the pay, you know, the phone booth stall. He's crying his eyes out because he didn't get it. He wow. blew it with his tryout, and I got the job. Man, that's the... a, a very. You talking about an emotional roller coaster over yeah. a few weeks, a few months? Yeah, that was it. Man, and then on top of that, too, emotions ran high, especially with the fan base in ECW and just how into the product and how rabid they were. What was what was it like being in an environment like that, or even you know, like having a a hardcore match or fans bring the weapons match or, or whatever it may be. I know you were more of the old school type of worker, but when you're in that environment and these fans are so rabid and bloodthirsty in these shows, what was that like? And what was your mental process like going to the ring? Like, were you on high alert? Were you just out there to do a job? How did you get through that? In the beginning, it was almost took sometimes overwhelming because, oh, it, you bet. know, you it's the ECW crowd, and then I'm walking out, and they don't know who I am, and they're letting me know. They don't who the F are you. They let me know at 100%. They don't know who I am, and they do not care. Um, as the time went on, um, and I started getting a look, getting my foot in the door, so to speak, where people started recognizing me, things got a little bit easier. And me being a heel, it was really easy. Because once I go through the curtain, I am nervous until the time I lock up. Yep. You know, the introduction, walking to the ring. I may be cool on the outside, but on the it's like that whole thing from the movie Replacements where Gene Hackman says you're just a duck on the water. Yep. Outside, I'm calm and cool. On the inside, mile a minute. Know um, it all too well. And this is my 29th year. I'm still the same way. I'm nervous before I hit the, before I hit the curtain. When I hit the curtain, I'm still nervous. So it was the same way. And, and well, once you get in there, your ability takes over. You're just going through the motions to an extent. Um, remembering your spots, uh, and once I started getting a little more of where the crowd started getting easier. But in the beginning, in the beginning, it's rough because I got a many a boring chance. Um, the 
they don't know who you are, you're not an Anderson, all kinds of crazy stuff. Absolutely. And, of course, I'm sure the boring chants came because you were actually wrestling, whereas other people were, you know, hardcore chair shots and everything else, which is my favorite kind of heat right there too so i yeah. i get that but i was getting them i was getting them because they didn't know who i was and i mm. wasn't somebody they just wanted me to get the hell out of the ring so new jack or somebody like that of could course come the ring. oh man yeah good on that guy for all those dives he did but oh man i you could not pay me enough for that but speaking speaking of new jack you know he was known to to go to the extreme and you actually ended up you know tagging with steve carino and forming the extreme horseman and where did that idea come from, and how did you, like, how was it pitched to you? Um, Steve and I were best friends for the longest time, and mm-hmm. we, we rode together and hung out together. And we kind of had the idea with Simon Diamond. It wasn't so much of the Extreme Horseman name, but it was more of the uh, us tagging together because we were all so close. And it wasn't until we got the, down to Dusty Rhodes Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling Promotion where it actually came to fruition one night we're in Georgia and Dusty Rhodes sits me and Steve Carino and Barry Windham down and he goes, you know, I got an idea about you guys. He says, I'm thinking about calling you the Extreme Horseman. And we're like, okay. He said, you know, because Steve, you and CW came from the Extreme and Barry, you were with the original Full Horseman. So I'm going to put this group together and let y'all be my heels. So we took it because Barry was a baby face at the time there. And right. you know, that was a very, very old school crowd to where they still believed wrestling was real. I love it. And um, so then that night, uh, Steve and I are working Dustin and Dusty. And at the end of the match, we handcuffed Dustin to the turnbuckles. People are literally, well, actually, the boys start hitting the ring first, which was planned. We start laying them out. And the fans start hitting the ring because we're beating <laughs> up Dusty and having Dustin down, which I still remember kicking this older lady in the face to get her out of the ring. Um, they're hitting the ring. We're, you know, punching them, kicking them, trying to get them out of the ring, still beating up Dusty, and he's yep. all bloody. By that time, Barry Windham slides in with the chair, swings us at, swing at us, and we duck and get out of the ring, screaming at him, and the people are going crazy, and we're in this big-ass uh, high school gymnasium, and uh, they're going crazy, and he turns around, you okay? And then he waffles Dusty with a chair. Oh, man. And then waffles Dustin. Beautiful <laughs> setup. The air was let right out of the building. We jumped back in and beating them up. We had to get the police to escort us back. Man, that's uh, because heat. they're trying to get to it. Y'all, that was such good heat. <sighs> so and good. That's kind of how it was formed. Absolutely, and man, what year was that? And when, in relation to like ECW closing down, where does all that fit into the timeline there? ECW closed in two thousand one. I want to say it was about two thousand two, two thousand three. Okay. It was right about the time, uh, right before, I can't remember if Steve and I had started going to Japan, uh, but it was somewhere, I want to say it was 2002 when we were formed. Absolutely. Man, that's, and that, okay, that, because I wasn't sure, like, it, I, for some reason I had it in my mind that it started near the end of ECW, but that that's so fascinating. It was really, that it, really, really close. Man, I love it. And I, I love that it was a Dusty Rhodes brainchild, too. That's just even mm-hmm. better. But you mentioned, too, going to Japan. And that's something that I, I haven't had the fortune to do in my career. Maybe that'll come down the road. But what is it like when you go over there, too, especially where, you know, you hear that they like to test the the gaijins or the foreign wrestlers and, you know, maybe lay it in a little bit more or there's a language barrier. What was all that like for you being that far into your career and then going over there and being in a whole new world? 
a humbling experience because when I go, I get over there, as soon as I walk in the hotel room, I'm trying to change my flight to come home because oh, that's how out of my element fish out of where I was. They even talked to Carino that night. He's like, look, just give it a few days, man. He says, you'll adapt. He said, I had a hard time with it. He said, you'll adapt because there ain't nothing in English over there, of course. Right. Everything's in Japanese. Everybody kayfabes the English. They don't speak English to you. They're all Japanese uh, speaking. Uh, you don't know your way around. And so my first two weeks there, the first tour was rough. And they laid it in on me. I remember uh, my second match was against Hashimoto and Fujiwara. Mm -hmm. And it was a test. They, they beat my ass. Steve had been there. But since I was new, um, you know, we even had to work out with the with the uh, new time, the um, trainees. Yeah, the young boys. Stretch. Yeah, I had to work out with the young boys. And I was man. looking at Steve like, man, what? And we had to help set up the ring and take it down in the beginning. I was like, man, what the hell are we doing? And he's like, this is part of the Japanese tradition and culture. You have to help out to begin with, which, you know, I was like, okay. So first, second match was Hashimoto Fujiwara. Man, it was rough. I took... Hashimoto's original DDT, which is a straight-down brain buster. Um, my next match was against his enforcer, who, in a, who was basically my brother by the end of it, Takawa. Uh, you know, Takawa looks like me, the beard, he's grumpy like me, and, uh, <laughs> and he beat my ass that first match. Clothesline after clothesline after clothesline. But after my first tour there, I came back, because uh, I won them over in that match with Hashimoto and started coming back, it was a whole different story. I they lightened it. up. I mean, it was still, at the time, it was still strong style. It's, today, over there, it's not strong style like it used to be. Right. They, they, were, they were kicking the shit out of us. Um, we were actually, Steve got, I got where they got their young boys and the ones they were elevating and putting them in the ring with us. And I mean, they were beating us up. And we were basically having to tell them, hey, you ain't got to hit us that hard. We were showing them, right. if you hit me like this, I'm going to sell exponentially to make it look that good. And one of their fighters from Pride and Rings, uh, Sakata, he was the same way. He put him in the ring with me, and he beat me like a mule. Man. <laughs> and then, you know, I was selling for him, and like a few weeks later, he was talking to me, and he had pretty good English, and he was back in CW. He said, he said, I was just kicking you and slapping you and punching you he said and then i'm barely touching you and you're selling it more and it's like i'm hitting you more i was like yeah it's because it's a work cicada <laughs> exactly exactly um, but the, the the style i loved the respect from the fans i loved their respect for the wrestling i loved was because they would come the men and women the they would come distinguish you know business casual dress uh suits mm -hmm. business dresses i mean it, it was a big deal um and it was i love the people over there love the culture and after the first tour man i was ready to come back and that's and tour after tour it, it got so much easier because you learn the language because i love how you know over here we cater to everybody exactly you know nobody's got to suffer everybody's not everybody's catered to everybody gets a participation trophy and mm -hmm. everybody gets a pat on the back it ain't like that over there you have to learn to speak the language. You have to learn your way around. Nobody caters to you. Um, so that's what I loved about it because they're so respectful and so, you could say, old school with their traditions. You go over there, you learn, and you're respected, and you show the respect, and you come back over here, and you go to McDonald's or Bojangles where these people don't give a damn yep. about you. And they're so rude, and you're like, yeah, I can tell I'm back in the States. Absolutely. 
when you go to when you go to restaurants over there, it's a completely different story. And something something that you mentioned too about the crowd, you know, especially showing up in like distinguished dress. They they treat it like a legitimate sport over there, and they're very quiet and very respectful during the matches. You know, they may applaud for something here or there, but they're not as you know like raucous and engaged, so to speak, as an American crowd is, where they're yelling at everything, they're booing, they're cheering. What was that first experience like for you when you have a crowd like that that isn't really reacting to what's going on in the ring until the match is over, and they may stand and applaud? What was that like for you? It's something to get used to. You know, there there's. When you go over there more and they start learning, you know, you got the girls that are screaming your name, right. the guys that are screaming your name. And, I, you know, they always called me the king of Corgan Hall because I was, they saw I was so popular over there. And when our music would hit, you could walk out and you could see the Japanese fans, you know, trying to get their fingers together to, to do my <laughs> W, which is always fantastic. I love it. Um, but once you could get them into your match, then they, they were a lot more rowdy. You know, they were talking a lot bit more. Because Steve and I were half comedy, half serious. You know, in the beginning, we're doing funny things. You know, we're doing rock, paper, scissors. We're trying to make the crowd laugh. But when it comes time to put the heat on, we're way serious. Absolutely. Um, and you know, over here, the fans, they, they want to be so much part of the match. And, you know, you got some great fans, but then you have some that just take it away from, you know, take away the, the fun of it. Um, but those fans that are here, Help make me from ECW because they were the same way. They were the ECW fans kept you on your game for that fact. Because if you weren't at an A game, they were going to let you know. So every time you came out, you stepped it up. Absolutely. In Japan, when you got out of the ring and you got that appreciation, you got them chanting, you got them stomping your feet. You really feel like you've accomplished something over there. For sure. And that that was the great rush from getting out of there and having them say your name and having them applaud and things like that and patting you on the back. That was the adrenaline rush over there. Man, I, I can only imagine, and I'm hoping one day I'll get to experience that, but dude, that's that's so awesome to hear. And then, like you said, you come back stateside, and you're back to, you know, you're back in the U.S. You know what's going on, and it's it's a completely different culture again. You, you know, you're involved with TNA at one point. You're also, you know, like involved in some ECW, um, you know, um, like a one-night stand or a hardcore homecoming. You've got all that coming up. But then you also, you know, end up with a pretty serious medical issue in 2005 where, you know, like you had issues with your liver and you were out of the ring for several months. And what was what was that like for you, especially when you come out on the other side of it? Had you considered stepping away at that point or were you just gung ho to get back in? What was your mindset during all that? Um, when I laid in the hospital bed that night, and they told me I. And the doctor told me they didn't think I was going to live. Ooh. That's kind of a um, shot that yeah. every, everything else, wrestling, everything else, you don't care about. I remember after that night, um, my girlfriend was driving me somewhere the next day. And seeing people, it was seeing people out walking their dogs and laughing and joking. And mm-hmm. me, here I am, not thinking I'm going to live and just wishing I had their life, so wishing I didn't have mine. Um, you know, I went from 255 pounds to 212 pounds in 21 days. Wow. From Good having God. telestatic liver failure. And then it was just taking a supplement that I got from something the Lord GNC sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called Super Draw from Anabolic Extreme was the company. Yep. Um, 
it was a pro hormone. It turned out to be a, basically a freaking steroid um, that shut my liver down. And when my story came out, so many people around the country, their story started coming out because of this product hurting everybody. Yeah. Um, it took, I forgot how many weeks or a month that it took before my liver ever made a turnaround because it got to a point wow. where I'd eat a half of a sandwich and throw it back up. Good God, um, man. I couldn't take Tylenol. I couldn't take anything because with yeah. my liver not functioning, uh, nothing worked. So it got to a point where my liver was taking the bile that it usually excretes and it was pushing it through my skin. Um, and if anybody, you know, if you're listening to this, if you've ever been sunburned when it starts to heal mm-hmm. and you got that scratch, imagine having that on your body 24 hours a day oh, God. For, for two weeks and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't take anything. So they they told me to go to Walmart and get this lotion. It was called Sir. It started with an S. I, I don't remember the name of it now, but if I walk by it at Walmart and somebody has squirted or something like that, it makes me sick to my stomach because I was I literally caking, caking it on my body uh, because you couldn't be near me. Sunlight, the, even the light of the room would hurt me. My skin was so sensitive. Um, but once they told me I was going to, my liver started rejuvenating and started making a comeback because it had swollen. You know, your liver's up under your rib cage. These are the things I didn't know mm-hmm. until I had this. Your liver's up right, under right. your rib cage, and it had swollen to the point where it was down <sighs> at my waistline. That's how big my liver had gotten. Jeez, man. So they told me I was going to make a, a turnaround, and I went and did Shane Douglas's hardcore homecoming because I just wanted to be back in the ring. Of course. I, just, I wanted to feel alive again, yeah. so, so to speak. I had no business being in the ring, and I worked with Spike Dudley, and Spike took care of me, and he and I – you know, I did my stalling superplex, and when we hit the both the ropes, something didn't feel right. And when I got up, my back twinged. Oh. That night, I, I laid in a bed, um, and a good friend of mine, Sumi Sakai, laid. But she just laid beside me and kept ice on my back just to keep it from Gosh. spasming. They put me on the um, plane to come home the next day. I was on Southwest, and nobody would sit beside me because my back was spasming, and it looked like I had Tourette's. Oh, uh, not Therese, oh, was it the Michael J. Fox? Uh, Parkinson, Parkinson's. Well, Parkinson's, yes. If anybody had Therese, I apologize. But look, I had Parkinson's because I couldn't stop twitching. So nobody was sitting beside me. Um, I got home, uh, got to the chiropractor, and found out I had blew out my L5 and S1. Jeez. So not only am I recovering from liver failure, but I'm also having to lay in a bed for 28 straight days because I can't walk. Yeah. Oh, God, man. I can't even imagine yeah. taking that one-two punch right there. That's insane. That was – it was rough. I was uh, – I laid. I only got up uh, to go to the bathroom and one time a week to go to the chiropractor so he could gently manipulate me to help those discs breathe to get yeah. them back in. Um, and it would take – at the time, my bathroom was maybe – 12 feet from where I was and it would take me like 30 minutes to get there because I was having to either walk on crutches or she was having to help me if she was home my girlfriend at the time Um, and I laid in the bed I ate breakfast lunch and dinner in the bed I never got out for 28 straight it's just for those few times Um, couldn't even touch my knee because my back was so screwed up wow and slowly but surely things just started getting a little bit better and that's about the time when the whole WWE ECW thing took off and you know I hadn't I hadn't even wrestled in six or seven months because of my back mm-hmm. and then my very first match back was Sabu at the arena with this at, at that ECW new brand wow okay man so that's a lot that's another roller coaster right there but one thing that really you know jumps out to me is that you're 
your girlfriend was there taking care of you the entire time. When she sees you in this state, did she ever have that conversation with you or try to talk you out of coming back, especially after that first round where you end up, you know, in the bed for 28 days? Did she, like, have express any concerns at that point, or was she just more concerned about getting you across the finish line to get you back to health? <laughs> she she did, but she knew how much I loved wrestling because, you know, at the time she was actually one of my former students. So oh, wow, she, okay. she was a wrestler herself, but she she knew that my passion was and I even remember when I you know I was in the bed and I would go to the chiropractor and I couldn't they had to stand me up one time to take x-rays and I was in so much pain I was crying and I was I was told my chiropractor I said get me to walk I will never wrestle again I don't want to wrestle I just want to be able to walk again right and that turned into being able to walk just a little bit into a lot into I remember laying or going in my bedroom I forgot how many months it was later and making myself take a bump on my own bed just to see if my body could take it. And I was almost in tears before I did it because I knew how much pain it was in. And once I did that, man, like this huge relief come over me and it was it seemed like it was a, a turn to take off that way. But every all of my relationships, every one of my, my um, spouses have been, you need to stop. You need to stop yeah. just because of the head injuries, um, the injuries in general. Understandable. Um, Except the, the my fiance now, she knows because she's right there with me. She knows she's going to be. It's one of those things. She's going to be with me to the wheels fall off, and then we're going to walk. Right. She knows. Uh, she knows what I'm going to do. She don't try to get me to stop. She has told me that if I wrestle somebody else that don't know what they're doing and they hurt me, that we're done. So because understandable. Here I've been hurt. I've been hurt four times by four different guys that that's been in the business maybe two years. Yeah. Man, I'm not gonna. I don't want to pull too far behind the curtain, but I I heard a conversation like that maybe not even three weeks ago with uh you know with a fellow veteran that's getting ready to hang it up after 30 years. But he said my days of working these new guys that think they can do something are done because all it takes is one to 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 seriously injure you, cripple you, or whatever it may be. I'll stick with working the guys that know what they're doing. So I yeah I, I get my, that. My, my last one was when I was working with AML Promotion and um. This quote unquote tag team of the year, only been wrestling a couple of years, we're in such a damn hurry uh, to a belly to back suplex, a belly to back. You go up and down. Yeah. They pick me up and they go back with me backwards. They lean and tower me backwards and drop me on top of my damn head. Mm-mm. The first thing that hits is the back of my head yep. and my knees over my head. Uh-uh. So I. I scream and cuss at him in the back for this for that crap. It's just unnecessary. It Absolutely. is unnecessary to be in that big of a hurry uh, to get your stuff out and get your shit over. So uh, that was kind of the last one w- with me with those guys. So understandable, man. You look. I'm, I'm 51 right now. I'm in the best shape I have ever been. I'm 215 pounds. You know, at ECW, I averaged about 250. Right, 240. right. Uh, I even got up to like 270, 280 at one time. So I couldn't imagine being that heavy and then getting folded like that because it would have broke my neck. Yeah. My neck oh, was God, yeah. Up for like two weeks. Um, and it's a lot. Some of the, you know, let's take, for instance, the guys up, up top now. You got so many guys hurt because of that new style of jumping around and all that crazy stuff. For sure. Um, so, but um, that's uh, that's for another story. And I, <laughs> no wonder my therapist told me not too long ago that I've lived a thousand lives because I have so many ins and outs and roller coasters up and down 
Absolutely. And that, that's actually something that I do want to come back to here in just a moment. But, um, you know, you mentioned that your first match back after those injuries was with Sabu under the new uh, WWE ECW umbrella. And, and during that time, you know, you worked the house shows, you even worked dark matches, and you had one match on TV where I think beforehand they may have tweaked your name just a little bit. What was it like working under that structure before uh, before the eventual release came? How was that for you at that point? It 100% sucked. I hated being with WWE. I hated working for them with that brand because it was never about getting ECW over. It was about burying ECW to get their brand over. Right. And that's what Vince does. If he didn't create you, he's going to change you. Absolutely. Um, he changed my name. This is the story that Paul Heyman told me, the reason he changed my name. Paul looks at me one night. He says, Vince is going to change your name. I said, why? He says, well, C.W. Anderson and C.M. Punk, people might think it's too similar because of the initials. Yeah, well, I can, I can see that, Paul. You know, Punk's tatted up, slim, got hair. I'm a little heavier set. I wear a singlet. I don't have any tattoos. Yeah, I can see where they can get that confusing. Um, yeah, I can see. He goes, well, it's not so much that. You know, you being CW, he might think you're part of the CW network. I was like, Paul, you got to be shitting me. Really? I said, okay, I was CW long before the CW network. As a right. matter of fact, a buddy of mine that worked for TV Guide told me the very first promo picture that CW network put out was one A-list celebrity doing this and the other one doing this to promote the CW network. Who the hell do you think come up with that? Me. Yep. Exactly. So I said, I, I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And I said, you know what? I don't care. I said, I don't want to be here. I hate being here. Just as long as I can keep my CW hook, I don't care. So they changed my name to Christopher W. Anderson. And I only did it a couple of times. Um, I signed for the bare minimum. I was because I was under the impression that Paul and Tommy were going to have complete control of ECW. Right. It was done. I'm going to be part of it. And it wasn't until that house show, the very first one, and Vince took it over and put all his guys in there. And it, it was never ECW. All the, of the ECW originals, like myself, Danny Dorn, Francine, mm -hmm. we didn't like being. We hated being there. I mean, hell, Francine and I, when we would go to house show or TV because you were there for so long, when we find out that we weren't on the TV, we'd get in the car and leave and go to the next town. Yeah. We didn't want to be there. And the day Johnny Ace called me, uh, January 17th, 2007, and said they were going to release me, I went, sweet, thank you. He says, well, yeah, maybe there's a time, you know, we can bring you back. Hell no. I said, I don't want to come back. I was like, can I go to Japan? He's like, well, you just can't compete with TNA for 90 days. I was like, I don't want to go to TNA. I said, I want to go back to Japan. He's like, yeah, well, go ahead. I know you like being over there. That's kind of how that conversation went. And I, I'm not going to lie, that's so cool to hear, too, that, you know, a lot of guys are, are, are so defeated by that point that they're just kind of, like, going through the motions on that call. But I love that you stuck to your guns, and you were you were happy about it because it gave you a chance to, to relight that fire and get back into everything. And then also, too, showing your love of going back over to Japan. I love that you were able to be that confident in that scenario and... I don't want to say like regain your mojo, but you know, get back out there, go to Japan and then get back on the independence. Because I mean, for the next 13 years, you, you tore it up out there and you yeah. mentioned AML and that's become one of the biggest companies that 
I see on social media at this point, and I even see it more than ones like over on the uh, on the West Coast. So what was it like getting back into that independent scene and working with all these up and comers and, you know, especially like we mentioned a minute ago, these guys that started doing all this high flying and spotty stuff, as we call it. And you're trying to maybe get them under the learning tree and slow them down and teach them more of the psychological approach and the storytelling approach to wrestling. What was all this like? You know, once I got away from that shit show, that was that Disney fight ECW. Yeah, because yeah, I'll tell you this: they actually I can't remember the, the ring announcer that passed away recently. The bald headed guy with the mustache. If you said his name, I know exactly not, who it was. Not Howard Finkel. Uh, yeah, Howard. Finkel. Oh, okay, okay. Howard Finkel. So Fink called me one day because I had been doing interviews and stuff like that, and I've been telling the truth. I've been telling how it was there, how we were treated, you know, what my pay was, how shitty it was, things like that. And he called me and basically said, well, "You can't, you can't." talk like that i said why not well it makes us look bad i went i don't care he said you 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 know we would prefer you you don't talk i said i'm not under contract with y'all anymore i can do about what the hell i want to yeah i said howard i said respect to you i i understand i know where you got a call i said but you can't stop me from telling the truth and he's like well just kind of watch what you say because you just never know if you're going to come back i I don't want to come back i don't want to be back there so i'm going to speak the truth and you can't silence me speaking the truth absolutely so once i got away from there and got my love of the business back over and started you know i went back to japan a few more times and started doing other indies and then when aml came around and you know invited me to you know start working with them um i have always been the type of guy the type of veteran that wants to leave this business better than i found it absolutely uh i try to pass it along to the people that want to learn because there's a lot in this business, and there's a lot. A few of them I've ran off from AML because now they're in that little southern promotion down in Charlotte. Uh, I ran them away because a lot of those guys and some of the independent wrestlers today, how do I best explain this? They were born on third base thinking they hit a triple. triple. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't like their matches critiqued as far as being told what they did wrong. Yeah. They want to be told what they did right. They want to be patted on the back. They want that participation trophy. Uh, they rather listen to the fans tell them how great they are than a veteran tell them how long they, what they screwed up and how they can fix it. Well, I've always said if you listen to the fans long enough, eventually you'll be sitting out there with them. Exactly. Um, so that's how I, I've gotten to a point where there's only certain ones I help because they're the ones that I know respect. At one of my students, Victor Andrews, he's done some stuff at WWE. Um, he's with Control Your Narrative now. There's another guy that I've kind of taken under my wing that's with Control Your Narrative. You know, EC3 and Braun Strowman and stuff. His yep. name's Fodder. He's another one that um, that you to look out for because these are the guys that take my advice and tweak it and put it into their own form. Um, I only, like I said, my partner and I only help certain ones because we got to the point where we help certain people. And we help certain people, and we help that certain person, and they don't want to do what we've been telling them, and then they keep wondering why they're failing. Um, we have a lot of great people at AML, uh, Tracy Myers and Brian Hawks, who you're going to interview. Yes, sir. He's coming up as week. a guest. Yep. Um, they're phenomenal. Tracy is a fantastic owner at AML. Brian's a fantastic booker, um, and they're actually the guys that run Russellcade. And if you've ever heard of Russellcade, you know how fantastic that oh, thing yeah. is that we do every Thanksgiving weekend. And for anybody that had never been to WrestleCade, you should come. Um, they have built a core group of guys that love this business, that work their ass off in front of, you know, 
we sometimes we don't draw the greatest from people, you know, 200, 300 people, and sometimes right. we do 1,000. It just depends on, you know, the day, uh, so to speak. But we still go out there and give everybody 100%, no matter who's in the crowd. And it's a family-oriented show. There's no cussing. There's no, you know, wild gestures or anything like that. Absolutely. Um, so that promotion I love working for. And my partner, Preston Quinn, and I, you know, we're their tag champs. Uh, we're still representing the Extreme Horsemen. I will represent I that it. until my last breath in this business. And this promotion is something that if it wasn't for this promotion and me tagging with Preston, I don't think I'd be wrestling right now. Man. That's that's the fun because Preston and I get to go wrestle some great tag teams. We get to be a part of some great shows. You know, we did War Games not too long ago. A few shows ago, Preston mm-hmm. and I worked OGK, who I've always wanted to be in the ring with, with Matt Taven and Mike Bennett wow. and Maria. Holy crap, it was a good match, and they are fantastic. To me, that's OGK, Briscoe's, so FTR, you don't get much better than that. Absolutely not. And, man, that's one that I would kill to see right there, FTR versus you and Preston Quinn. That would, I mean, as a as a worker and as a fan, man, that would just be the absolute epitome of a tag team match right there. That would be awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, they, they started in the Carolinas as well. They were uh, coming along um, before they got their job at WWE yep. when they were wrestling under different names. Um, and their style is, is just like ours. It's old school. They study wrestling just like we do. They respect the business just like we do. Um, same way with the Briscoes. Same way with OGK. You're you're not you're not going to see a lot of flipping and things like that. But the one thing you will see is some great storytelling and a lot of wrestling psychology. I love it. And you've already sold me on it. And man, it's just it, it's so cool. So I'm going to have links to everything that. AML has going on in the show notes too. So if anybody's in the area, anybody wants to check out the show, or if they want to come in for WrestleCade too, I'm gonna to have links yeah. there for that. But yeah, like last, okay, for last year, mm-hmm. last year's WrestleCade, um, just to give them a special thing. If you go on either my YouTube channel or you know type in my name, and you'll see that we do a battle royal every year. You know, part of the big show, the WrestleCade. During Saturday, there's a Friday night show. There's a huge sign-in Saturday. And then there's a Saturday night big show. And then there's two shows on Sunday. Usually about 10,000 people show up. And there was about four or 5,000 at the big show. I um, did a tribute to one of my closest friends, New Jack. Mm-hmm. Because me and Jack were very tight. Um, it crushed me when I lost him. I Absolutely. even speak to his wife about once a week still. And... Brian Hawks had the great idea because he knew how close Jack and I were. He's like, he said, how about you come out of the battle royal to Jack's music dressed up like Jack? I said, I love it. I said, I'll, I'll ask Jen and get her permission. And I asked her and she said, I can't think of nobody better to do it. That's so amazing. You go up there, you Google that, you'll see me dressed like new Jack and you'll see me hit everybody with the plunder. And I did a little, <laughs> little nod to him because the first thing new Jack hit me with at ECW was one of those old electric football games. So I was oh, able to man. find one. The day before the show, uh, Dre White shot out to him because he went and got it off Craigslist for me, and I actually hit follow ball with it. Nice. So you watch that, man. It was a great tribute. And the fans, they when I came out, everybody was doing the New Jack, and when I got done, they were chanting New Jack, New Jack, New Jack. Oh, so awesome. So it was a great tribute to Jack. Cause, and one of my best buddies who's on a part of the John Boy and Billy show, uh, he messaged me that night. He said, if they didn't call you Cracker Jack, he said, I'd be highly disappointed. <laughs> 
That's so I brilliant. Think this coming year, that's what I, that's that's going to come out to is Cracker Jack. That is brilliant, and I'm going to make it easy for everybody. I will have a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can check it out. So I mean, oh my god. That is amazing. And and on top of that, too, I, I, I've come to find out, too, that we're kind of kindred spirits and that you've not only been involved in the wrestling world, but you're now involved in the acting world as well. And you were kind of telling me about that before we started here. So let's uh, let's give that a little bit of a plug here. Um, I got introduced to this uh, Street Nerds production group. That's, that's her name, Street Nerds. Street Nerds Production, mm-hmm. and they have done a couple little small films. Uh, we actually started filming one right before COVID hit. It was a Mortal Kombat remake, and they had uh, written a script for this new thing called Nightwing Rebirth. Now, I'm not a big – I love the comics. Mm-hmm. I love Marvel. I love DC, but I am not your quote-unquote comic nerd, so I right, didn't know right. all the backstories. I didn't know who Nightwing was or anything like this. But anyway, they wrote the story. They got a guy from California who writes movie scripts that writes DC to rewrite it. Um, they got the people that make the costumes for the TV show The Boys to make Nightwing's costume. Oh, cool! So it, you know, at Nightwing, you had Red X, um, you had Catgirl, we had Batman, um, and I played Bane. Even better. Uh, so I had they. They said you take your own take on Bane. Your adaptation, whatever you want to do, and you know now when you see Bane, all you can think of is Tom Hardy. Yeah. So I was trying to get away from that. Of course. Uh, I didn't want to do the Tom Hardy mask, so I kind of did a different mask. I got off of Etsy. Um, it's been about I think we started in October with the fight scene choreography, and then last month uh, we finished up. I was finished up with my my scenes. You know, they were doing different scenes, yeah. and then they were fitting my, fitting my schedule into what we do. Long days, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock at night. But um, it was man, it was a lot of fun. It was my first taste uh, of doing some acting, and I love it. And they, we got some more stuff coming up. I don't know what we're going to do yet, or they're going to do, but they said they want me to be a part of it. Oh, man, but the main awesome. thing was was so much fun. I don't. My next thing I got to do is go do the ADRs where. You know, get in front of the microphone yep. and do my Bane voice because the mask I had, it muffled me a lot. Yep. And not only and when you watch this, just know that I could only be in that thing for like a minute, minute and a half because it was Ooh. thick plastic oh, and God. I couldn't breathe. And the eyes were a red safety goggles. Yep. So every time I breathed, it fogged it up. So after like oh, a minute, man. I had to like take it off. <laughs> so that is some dedication. I but it was bet. fun, man. It was a lot of fun to do that. Man, that and is I can't, awesome. And a shout out to these guys, man, Street Nerd Productions and Maverick, who was kind of heading everything up. There's there's some fantastic people. First time meeting a lot of them, now I consider them family. I love it. And my last question here before we kind of flip things around a little bit is, I've noticed, especially in the acting realm, that wrestling in one way, shape, or form kind of prepared me for a lot of what the acting world can throw at you. Did you notice that as well, or... Did you, like, was it just stepping into a whole new world for you? What was your experience like going from one extreme to the other? It actually prepared me because I've I've always been afraid of the camera. I used to be afraid of the camera. Right. I'll say that. I was afraid of the camera. I couldn't cut promos. I mm-hmm. was, you could say not scared of my own shadow. But right. I remember when I was having such a hard time cutting promos, Paul Heyman threw me at, in front of the ECW crowd to cut my first live promo. Oh, damn. 
So if we go back and watch it, it was the night that uh, Simon and Swinger turned on their little faction. Danny and Dorian and Roadkill hit the ring. Uh, we beat them up, and I challenged somebody in the back. Or excuse me, I challenged them in the back. Danny and Dorian and Roadkill came out, and then Bobby Eaton came out, and he and I traded punches and stuff. Oh, nice. So that was my first live promo. And I wish they could have zoomed in on my feet and my boots because my knees and all was shaking <laughs> standing in front of it. But it, it got to where it prepared me to where I could transform from Chris Wright to C.W. Anderson. You know, I everywhere else it. I'm Chris Wright, but once the music hits or when I splash water on my face to get ready, um, I transform into C.W. Anderson, and I'm C.W. Anderson in the ring all the way through and through back, and it was the same way, that when I put the Bane stuff on, I was Bane. So it was easier to, to step out of that realm, that realm and, you know, have fun with it and not think that – People are yeah. going to make fun of me. I don't care if people make fun of me. I don't care. And you think act goofy and just be somebody else. Because, right. I mean, how I many people get to do stuff like this? It's exactly. Kind of cool. Exactly. And, I mean, if, it's a fun experience regardless. And if you get a reaction from them, that's, that's the goal at the end of the day. So it's all about having fun. Yeah. And man, speaking of having fun for the last hour, this has been an absolute blast for me getting to learn more about your story and you know, picking up on some similarities between both of us. So this has been an awesome experience. And again, shout out to Corey for getting us connected. But man, thank, yeah, thank you, you Corey. of course. And thank you for being so generous with your time to come on here tonight as well, man. Yes, this has sir, been awesome. Welcome, man. I hope everybody's going to enjoy this. Oh, I think I think they will. And I've come to find out they like this next part, too. They kind of like to see me squirm and shake at the knees a little bit because now I'm going to flip the roles. Uh, we're going to call it in the ring, and I'm going to let you throw some questions my way, and I don't know what the questions are going to be. I don't even know what they're going to be about, so we're about to have some fun here. All right. So I'm going to throw these off the top of my head. And For before sure. we get started, everybody that's watching this, everybody that's listening, thank you so much. Whether you've known me forever, whether you've loved me or hated me or just, you know, learning my stuff now, all my social media is at ECW Anderson. You can find everything at ECW Anderson. You message me, I will always answer you. It might take me a few hours, but I will always respond to you. And I will always say thank you for being a fan. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hating me. Uh, and no matter what, everybody's kept your, high, your hands high for C-Dub. So now on to the questions. So I'm going to come to this off the top of my head. That's um, fine. Where do you see yourself ten years from now? Ten years from now, I more than anything, I want to. I see myself providing for my family through the acting and entertainment endeavors. Um, God willing, I may still be taking some bumps here and there, but behind the mic is where I feel the most comfortable, and it's my goal to either do it with this podcast or with voice acting and voiceover in general, but just providing for my family, doing something that I love. And hopefully somewhere in there, this podcast gets picked up by a major network and it starts reaching a you know more, more established worldwide audience. It's still growing, but hopefully by that point, we'll have the roots planted and it'll have taken a life of its own and afford me the opportunity to live that dream. All right, aside from your, because you've got kids, right? Yes, sir. From your children being born, the happiest point, the happiest day of your life. Man, okay, the the happiest day of my life, and this is one, I, because it's the first thing that popped into my head, it was before I met my wife, before I met, you know, like, before my kids were born, as you said, obviously, it was the day that my, my we rescued my pit bull, my ex and I rescued uh, my oldest pit bull, Elliot, that everybody's heard about. I just, I always have this memory in my head of us being over at a friend's house, she went to pick him up from, uh, 
a, a foster site for Tennessee death row dogs. So she brought him over there, and I'll just always remember this brindle, essentially sausage roll, barreling through the door, passes everybody else, comes in, knocks the beer out of my hand, and just starts drinking it off the floor at my feet. Like, that was how I knew that I found, like, my, my spirit animal found the right dog yeah. for me, and we had him, I had him almost 10 years to the day and you know unfortunately a tumor on his spine we had to make the tough call to put him down but man he was he was with me through everything and I just always have that memory of him barreling through the house and just knocking the beer right out of my hand straight to me didn't pay attention to anybody else yeah yes yesterday made one year where I've lost I had to put my male rock roller down <sighs> I saw that man I I he was my 180 pound male um I had rescued a female after his sister died mm-hmm. to help him through his depression. Yep. I find out six days after she, he gets put down that she's got the same cancer, the same leg, not even the same bloodline. God. And we had to put her down in December. Um, I rescued one in September though. I have right now that was abused the first two years of his life. Yep. He was only two. Uh, so rescuing an animal is something everybody should do. Dude, and it's... Uh, if you, uh, don't go to a breeder, go to a rescue one because they're like it's like rescuing a homeless a homeless kid. Absolutely, um, it, man, it's it's so scary. Like, or I don't even know, scary is the right word, but it's so insane how how similar that that is to my experience too. Because you know, we had another pit bull uh, that we actually rescued about two months before my oldest son was born. So they grew up together, and you know, about this time last year, he he developed a cancer in his stomach, and we had to to put him down in January of this year. And then, you know, two months to the day, we'd already, we had adopted another pit bull to help our oldest Elliot with the depression and everything. And we still have him, thank God. But, you know, two months to the day on that first dog's birthday is the day that we had to put Elliot down due to the tumor. And it's just like, it's so strange how that works. But I mean, again, it's a lifetime commitment when you adopt these animals because they need you as much as you need them. I would, before I ask you next three questions, um, you know, you're, you are everything, your dog, you're everything to him. Absolutely. When, when it comes that time, I I know I've talked to vets and I've heard this online where they want you there because you're their world. Um, and you really, people can change pets life. And I've actually cried more over him. Oh yeah. I was bawling yesterday. Um, I'm trying not to get choked up about it because I've cried more over him and losing his his his, his sister yeah. than I have over some of my family members. I get um, it. So, w- moving on to try something more happy. What is yeah. your favorite wrestling match? My favorite wrestling match of all time. Um, it, it would have to be the one that really like solidified me wanting to even explore this endeavor, and it would have to be uh, you know Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle at WrestleMania 21. Like, that I, was a very good match. It, it was, and it was just the storytelling, the two guys that were in there, like, it couldn't have been a better match. Um, I got two. I got two. I got, really got one I'm going to close with. Yeah. But if, what about professional wrestling today would you want changed? Man, I think the biggest thing I would want changed is... <sighs> This is something I could say, too, that even goes back to when I was breaking in, um, and that was 15 years ago at this point, but I I feel like it needs to be more selective for who is allowed in because some of these people, like you said, they're not here to 
be told how they can improve or they're not here to, you know, take that constructive criticism and get better. They're here because they want to bring their family members and the promoter lets them do it, which it doesn't happen as much, but it still happens. And they may not even have real gear or know what they're doing and just get thrown into the ring because they needed a warm body. I would like to see that just completely, you know, taken out of the situation and just let it be people that you would pay to see doing this and not somebody that looks like they should be, you know, sitting in the crowd. If anybody gets, you want to see anything like that, if you go watch my partner, Preston Quinn, he does a thing where he commentates over the world's worst professional wrestling. It's called Outlaw Much Outlaw Oh, Muncher I wrestling. love it. I love it. It is fantastic. You see some crazy things. So, uh, was that, that was four, right? Yes, sir. Last one. How do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? I just want to be remembered more than anything as a good husband and a good father. And if I can leave that legacy with my kids to pass on through the world, then I've done something right. Can't complain with that. Absolutely. And that's, again, that's something that I didn't have, you know, growing up. I I had a strong father figure that wasn't my father, but... I never want to make my kids feel that way, and I always want to make sure they know right from wrong. That way, if there's that kid that's being bullied, they can be the one that goes and becomes friends with them or however it goes, and they just end up making the world a better place, and hopefully it spreads from there and just everybody benefits from it. Right. Man, I love it. And again, I I, I say this so much, but these questions are so diverse, and we've been doing this over a year now, and... No questions have been the same, and I always come out happy on the other end of it and so excited. My knees have stopped shaking, so we got through the match, man. That was a blast. Thank you. Oh, man, thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Dude, thank you so much. And, of course, you know, being the first one you've done, and you said about three or four months, man, I'm yeah. I'm extremely honored to have that privilege. So thank you as well. Yeah, you're certainly welcome, man. It was, it was a blast, and I hope, like I said, everybody's listening and watching. I hope you enjoy it. And like I said, any questions you got to answer, I didn't answer today. Message me, and I will answer them. And, guys, I'm going to make that easy for you. All these links are going to be in the show notes, along with the footage to the Battle Royal where he's paying tribute to New Jack. We're going to have everything for AML in the show notes as well, so I'm going to make it easy for you. Go look him up. Get connected. And if you're in the area, for the love of God, go check out one of his shows because you will not be disappointed. Thank you. Of course. And, guys, we're going to call it right there, and you know what to do at this point if you haven't already. Hit that subscribe button. Leave that five-star review. Check out the show notes. Get connected with CW. Check out the merch. Support the show. Support the charities that we benefit here. And then make sure you're here next week for another awesome episode. And in the meantime, go out and do some good in the world. Do some good for yourself. And be right back here next week because I'm coming back with another awesome guest. So for myself, for Chris, we thank you for being here tonight. And we'll see you next week. And I know you hear me. The I Know You Hear Me podcast is a presentation of Flynn Hendricks Enterprises. We thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope you'll check out our sponsors and advertisers. Make sure you check us out next week as we come back at the same time with another awesome episode.